Let's start. Oh, by the way, I've got extra copies of, here, here's two Dante, I forgot to put them over there. I've got extra copies of Dostoevsky and Paradise Lost, if anybody didn't get them. The Dostoevsky doesn't figure here. Hold on, I, this is the other thing. God, there's too much. One, we're done with um, Milton and Dante. I'm going to go back to the literature's prophecy work. We were going to do um, Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. I'm going to change that. I'll, I'll let everybody know. I think what I'm, we talked about doing um, Chaucer. I think what I'm going to do is do Beowulf, Sir Gowan the Green Knight, which are small poems. The beauty about Beowulf is it's the only work that I know that I can say this about sort of definitively. It's the only work that I know in the epic tradition, Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Divine Comedy, Paradise, that's a work in transition. It's a, it's a northern Viking story, um, but it's, it occurs at a moment when a Viking culture is being transformed from within by Christianity. And, it's, and most people don't see that. It's a stunning work in that sense because you can see a culture, a whole mode of relating to the world change. It's a, just a short work, so is Sir Gowan. Anyway, I thought for the literature's prophecy, for those of you people who want to continue, the, the, the group that's been doing this, to let you know. So Beowulf, um, Sir Gowan, the Canterbury Tales is one I've wanted to do forever because it's, it's so Catholic. Chaucer has no scruples about talking about farts and a guy getting his arse burned off. I mean, he doesn't have the scruples that the modern American Puritan world has. He just, it's wonderful. He's so funny. He has such extraordinary faith, extraordinary faith, this man. He, I mean, one of the scenes he's talking about, he's describing a, probably a monk who passes gas, and he describes, <laughs> he's making fun of St. Thomas, who, you know, who, who makes distinctions all the time, because it's, and it, I take this seriously, it's a fundamental principle of St. Thomas, you can't reconcile until you properly distinguish. So you have to distinguish things to see them as they are, or you'll never be able to reconcile them well. So making those distinctions is really important. Anyway, the monk passes gas, and the gas passes through the spokes of a wheel, and he describes it as if it's dividing up and being distinguished, uh, you know, or distinct, the gas is taking on distinct forms. And in another scene, there's an adulterous love taking place, and one of the lovers st stuck out his... <laughs> there's a lover, a man, wooing a woman, and the other man who's wooing her, when the guy outside says, let me kiss you, he sticks out his rear end. When the lover starts to kiss what he thinks is his beloved, the guy passes gas again. <laughs> anyway, and the guy, the, the lover, he's a scholar, he's a scholastic type, is so enraged, he wants to get even, so he comes back another night and calls the girl out again, and it's the same guy who comes out again and puts out his rear expecting to pass gas again, except this time the lover has a branding iron. <laughs> you know, it's that sort of thing. I mean, it's just, Faulkner's very Catholic in loving the body. Or Chaucer. What did I say, Faulkner? Chaucer, I mean, there's this sense that the body is a holy but a comic thing because we keep tripping over it all the time, you know, in the things that we do. Anyway, it's a funny work. It belongs in the epic tradition. It's about a whole group going to Canterbury. 
So it fits in with the epic tradition that we've been working within. And, and um, I think, if, I, if I'm holding my head together here, I think after we do um, Chaucer, we will finish with um, Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. That'll bring us up to the modern world and the end of our work, I think. Something like that. Anyway, that's what we'll do. But this is different. The Milton-Dante thing is different. It's not this litis prophecy. And I'll get to that in a second, but let's, let's say a prayer. <clears throat> Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself, particularly in the Mass this morning, your words to us. Um, the Church asks us, you do, um, to be everywhere and always grateful. Father's homily was an encouragement for us to um, um, always have hope when there's no reason to have it. It's not hope otherwise. We hope because we don't have a reason for hoping when things get really bad. You ask us everywhere and always to be thankful. And you trust us that whatever burdens we suffer, whatever trials we undergo, you're always there. We know you're at work. So even when we undergo trials, you're always doing something, protecting our free wills, helping to bring good out of whatever bad experience. Help us to do that always in our life, to be grateful, particularly when it's hard. Um, I ask a special blessing on the work that we're beginning together here. Help us to read well, help us to give ourselves. More importantly, help um, us to bring all that we learn back to our world. Um, to make you more present um, so that others can know you more fully, to make your kingdom present. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let it be here um, as it is in your kingdom. We ask this in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, um, gotten in here early to do this. I hope I've got this right. Um, Say that. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, Let's start with the poem. Can you all pull out um, Hopkins' The Windhover? <laughs> and remember, if you can, take a minute and read Supernatural Love. And what I always ask you guys to do is read it aloud. You should hear it. I hope you all know that thoughts are disembodied, right? The thoughts in our heads are disembodied. It's like more spirit. Yeah, they don't have a body. We're, we're corporeal creatures. We have bodies. Um, poems are meant to be heard. The music of them is meant to be heard, not 
in the silence of our head, in that incorporeal world in here, you know, they're, they're meant to be given a body. So when you do these poems, read them aloud. If you have somebody else there, read them together. You know, they're always good to read, but anyway, if, if you can make a minute next week, find a minute next week during the week, read, read Supernatural Love. Okay, Gerard Manley Hopkins. Hopkins was a Jesuit priest who lived in the 19th century. There's an interesting backstory to all of this. If, if any of you know the history of that period, you know that in the middle of the 19th century, in, in England, as in America, Christianity's in the middle of a crisis. Serious, serious crisis. In America, the, the two works that speak most directly to that crisis are Melville's Moby Dick and Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. If you've read either of those works, you know that both of those authors are critiquing Christianity at a time when it's dying. Two currents of belief are in collision with each other. One is scientific, the other is Christian. And both of them represent radically different ways of reading the world, of understanding the world, right? They're in conflict with each other. The best work that treats that is, is Melville's Moby Dick. If you've read it, I mean, we did it together, you know that, that Melville is critiquing it and, and having fun with it, too, with Ishmael. But that's a major crisis. Christianity's dying. It's coming into conflict with a scientific way of viewing and, and in, in lots of ways they're at odds. The um, part of the great work that should go on, I think it's going on in probably more ways than we're aware of, should be to reconcile those two things. Because all things have their origins in God. If you read St. Thomas's Summa, you'll see, the, I think, the most perfect reconcil reconciliation of those two ways of thinking that has existed. Um, but there's a conflict there. And a similar kind of conflict is going on in England. It takes a different form, but it's present. Um, a large part of the um, Protestant world in England is unhappy with the laxness of the faith. And they were calling the English church, the Protestant Reformation churches together um, to answer what they saw as a, um, as a weakening, a softening of their faith. The movement that grew out of that is called the Tractarian Movement. All these people got together to write these tracts and present them publicly. They were asking for reforms. All of these were directed Anglican church, broad church, low church, all of it. What happened in the, in the, in the process of you know, that happening is that so many of the men as they began to look back at the history of the church and were rereading the church fathers is that they discovered that the problem wasn't a laxness in the Protestant church. It was Protestantism itself, that there were fundamental problems that they hadn't understood until they went back. And a large number of those men converted. John Henry Newman was one of them. And if you've read Newman, you know how, how important his works. One of the greatest works he wrote was the development of Christian doctrine. He goes back and he sees that some of the doctrines that the Protestant world is objected to, like transubstantiation, and, that were the natural result of things that were already present in the historic church and that became clearer in time which is no surprise, I mean, if you know anything about the church, you know 
third and fourth century, there were heresies everywhere. And the result of the conflicts in those heresies is the church fathers got much clearer on the nature of Christ. They were still struggling with who this guy was, second, third century. They believed, I mean, he was God-man, I mean, but they, they didn't get as firm about it until certain people came up with certain ideas and they had to answer them. And when they did, the result of that was this great clarity on the nature of Christ, who he was and what we were doing. And so that's been an ongoing part of our church. So Newman's book on the development of Christian doctrine is probably one of the most important books in the life of the history of the church. Um, another man that, that converted was Gerard Manny Hopkins. Um, and it's, um, if you go back and just look into his personal life, there's a little um, Oxford collection of poems, letters and notebook journals. It's a little collection. It's really wonderful. Included in it are some letters that he wrote to his father because um, what he did caused an estrangement between him and his family. They were just outraged that he would have converted to Catholicism. Um, I think there was a long period of time when they didn't talk or couldn't talk well with each other. <clears throat> but he converted <clears throat> became a priest. One of the early side notes about his poetry, he was so gifted as a poet. What he did with poetry was revolutionary in his time. He knew that the English language, poetic language, lang no, the, the, lang we, the language that we know, the English language that England and America knows, was in decay. I can say that safely. When you read Shakespeare and Milton, you know that our language is vital. When we, when, we, when we no longer have poets at work helping to keep our language vital, alive, it tends to decay and conform to the workplace. And you know how mechanical that can be. It's deadening. Poets are the ones who traditionally have always kept our language alive. Hopkins knew that we were in trouble. Frost knew it in America. Robert Frost is one of the great American poets who, who brought a, a new language to an ordinary popular. If you, you know anything about poetry, you know that poets tend to be at the margin of the world. In the ancient world, they were at the center of it. In the modern world, they're prophets. They're in the wilderness. The poets are on the margins. Robert Frost is one of the most important poets in the modern world because he brought poetry to an ordinary audience again. He made poetry popular. In England, um, Hopkins is aware of this decline, this disintegration, that <coughs> language has lost its vitality again. So he did a number of <coughs> extraordinary things. One of them was to go back to the Angli to the nature of poetic forms for the early, early medieval church, to Anglo-Saxon poetry. He adopted some of those forms and brought them back. So his way of renovating, renewing, was to actually go back, but incorporate them in, in a modern <coughs> idiom, a modern verse. Um, so what he did is really extraordinary. What he did is really extraordinary. Um, okay, you wouldn't know that. Scholars would know that. You guys wouldn't, and there's no reason to know that, except I want you to know it. <laughs> it's a good thing to know. Um, he, so many of the poems that he write, write, wrote were in uh, um, the form of Italian sonnets. Well, that's what you've got here. The Italian sonnet has two parts. It's got an octave and a sestet. 
The octave has eight lines, the sestet six. And they rhyme, right? If you go through, you'll see the rhyme scheme. Typically, in an Italian sonnet, the poet will use the octave to render an experience immediately, just as it took place. So we're in the experience itself, okay? In the sestet, he reflects back on it. Now that's not a small thing because what Hopkins is doing is showing exactly how the mind works. So what's in, what's in his poem is an enactment of the workings of our own mind. I hope that's clear. We've got an immediate experience and a reflection back on it. We're not animals. We just don't go through the world experiencing things immediately, right? We reflect on them in the, our mind. The reflections tend to take a universal form. It, it's, it has a universal quality because we're bringing to bear on an actual concrete experience the universal qualities of our mind, an abstracting, reflecting quality. So in one sense, the poem is enacting what we do with our minds. In the poem, he's describing this bird, this wind hover. And if you, when you read, when you, when you, as we go through it, you be aware of the religious language, the wimple, the dawn, that the bird is flying at sunrise. He's out on a morning walk. He's taking a morning walk. He looks up and he sees this bird. And for one moment, the bird, as a wind hover, masters the wind. He puts out his wings, and for a moment, it's as if he masters nature. He's there. He's not buffeted about. He's not moving. It's as if he masters it for a second. And notice all the, the language. The Dauphin, who's the prince heir of the French throne, right? The, 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 the heir of the throne, which is an image of Christ with the Father. And it all happens in the sunlight dawn. So he associates the bird, sees an affinity between the bird and the, and the, and the morning sun rising. He belongs to that, just as Christ does. And he watches the bird, and suddenly there's this moment when the bird masters. Now watch the movement. You all know what onomatopoeia is? Onomatopoeia is, is the poet using lines, sounds, and, and the movement and speed of a line to imitate what the lines are about. So you'll, you'll get a feel of the bird sweeping through the air. You'll hear it in the, in the poem. And watch it, because the whole movement, forward movement, of this poem as it moves forward describing the bird suddenly comes to this and it's in the first foot of the line. This never happened, rarely happens in poetry because lines move forward. That whole movement gathers to the first foot of a line and stops. And you'll see the word. And remember the word buckle has two meanings. It means gather together like a buckling because he's going to gather together all the valor act there, pride plume here, all the He's going to gather together all these powers, but buckle also means to collapse, to buckle. Because in that moment, he sees the paradox of Christ on the cross. That Christ gathers all of these things together and buckles. In that moment of mastery, he's crushed. And we know what comes out of that. So he describes the bird, and then in the sestet, he reflects on it, and he says, no wonder. There's no wonder in this. It's everywhere around us. We shouldn't be surprised. It's there in a bird. And then he describes a farmer tilling the land, and if you know, you know anything about farming, you know that the farmer starts with a clay kind of earth, clay. But as he works the earth, 
it produces this cilium, this fine earth, dirt, that almost lets out a shine, you know, that shines forth, that the earth almost glows. And then he describes a fire going out. And you, you know from fires that, that the, at the beginning of the fire, there's this rage, it just burns. But the fire reaches a, a point where it begins to go out. That is, it destroys itself. And at the moment when it begins to go out, you know that the, the uh, ember, the, 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 the coals, the wood, um, as it begins to go out, it's no longer a raging fire. They, they crush each other and they produce this beautiful glow and this vermilion color. So the, the moment of the greatest beauty of the fire is when the fire goes out. And there's another instance of Christ you know, on the cross, gathering all of this power and, and this extraordinary beauty when it goes out. So he's saying, no wonder, Christ is everywhere all around us, okay? I don't ordinarily take this kind of time because I just want to, but I want you to have a sense that, that the poems we're going to read are, are all poems that in some ways reveal Christ, where ordinarily we don't see him. <coughs> Gerard Ham Manley Hopkins, The Windhover, <coughs> To Christ Our Lord. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dauphin, Dappled on drawn falcon in his riding of the rolling level underneath him steady air. And striding high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy. Then off, off forth on swing as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend. The hurl and gliding rebuffed the big wind. He rebuffed it. He didn't, he rebuffed the wind. My heart in hiding stirred for a bird the achieve of, the mastery of the thing. Brute beauty and valor and act, O oh, air, pride, plume, here buckle. In the fire that breaks from thee then, a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, O oh, my chevalier. No wonder of it, sheer plod makes plow down cillian shine, and blue bleak embers, ah my dear, fall, gall themselves, and gash gold vermilion. Stunning. I hope that one of the things that you'll see here when we move, because we're dealing with poetry, how important poetry is. I've been hitting the parishioners with this for the last two or three years, that poets give us a knowledge that we can't find anywhere else. It returns us to our world. Poetry returns us to our world. It gives us knowledge as experience, as immediate experience. It's not theoretical, we're not abstracting, we're not in theories, psychological, political, sociological. We're back in the world, but we're back in a world formed so that we're able to re-experience the world in a kind of glory, a beauty, and a truth. We, we see more through it while we're at it. It's a reminder that there's something there in experience all the time. That, and when we abstract from it, the way we do theoretically all the time when we come out of it, we always lose something. Yeah, we're in a world of abstraction, we're in our heads. Poetry takes us back to that world. Except it does it 
It carries with it a beauty and a truth that helps us see it was always there, um, even if we didn't see it. So it's a different kind of knowledge, what poetry is giving us. Um, if you couldn't tell by now, I have a really vested interest, a strong vested interest in poetry. <laughs> so, okay. Age is showing more and more. God, okay. Why are we here? Let me put this out generally to begin with. Um, in a minute, I want to come to the background um, because this is a setup for Milton. But I want to make a couple of general comments to begin with here. Why are we here? Um, the <laughs> The genesis of this course was a moment in Mass when Father was giving his homily. I don't remember what the readings were. He was giving his homily, and he was taking quotes from Milton's Paradise Lost, where Satan says, um, better, to, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, or and some other quotes. And, um, and he spent a major part of his homily on Milton. I was actually shocked, and, and I had not read Milton. I used to teach it at UD regularly, but... It had been years since I'd been dealing with Milton, but I was taken with it. I did. I didn't. We didn't do Milton in the in the prophecy class. Um, um, I don't know what, why, but I just thought it would be good to put Milton and Dante together because Milton is um, Protestant, and in a very very important way. There's a there's a paradoxical quality to Milton. There's lots of ways I don't I don't much care for him, but his the the beauty of his poetry is extraordinary. There's a strange quality to Milton. In in one way, what Milton does with the epic tradition is look back. You'll see it when we get there. He, he's he, he, even though he's on the verge he is on the verge of the modern world. We can say he's one of the first moderns. We find ourselves in Milton. He's looking back and, in one sense, taking the epic backwards. Um, the way he treats the gods, what he does with them, is, some, in my mind, awful. But he's forward-looking in, in this sense. He radically changes the epic tradition because, unlike the other early epic writers except Dante, he situates his epic in a Christian world and in Christian dogma. He will invoke the Holy Spirit the very beginning. If you know anything about the ancient epics, they invoke Calliope. She's one of the goddesses. We're in a pagan world. In Milton's world, we're not. He's invoking the Holy Spirit, and more importantly, he's going back to the fall. So he's going back to the origins of everything. No epic, no pagan poet could have done that. And in that sense, he's letting the cat out of the bag. He's doing a stunning thing. He's showing all the epic poets, what they didn't see and what readers didn't see, that the cause of all the problems that they are talking about in the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, was the fall. They had no clue about it. They were pagans. They didn't know Christ. So he radically transforms the epic tradition, radically turns it on its head. Um, so he's a, a really important figure. We're starting with him 
because I want to end with Dante, because I think Dante's view is far more comprehensive and in some ways far more modern. You, I hope I can show why when we get there. But When I was thinking about all of this and trying to put this get together, I went back to my notes on the Reformation thinkers, because I have to do this before I present classes. I've never done it so thoroughly before. I, 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 I know about Wycliffe and Luther and Calvin and but I never made it a big thing. Here I couldn't avoid it. So even though I'd, I've always done this piecemeal before, this time I had to take it on as a whole. I had to get more serious about it because this was the Reformation going forward. And I was stunned, stunned, absolutely stunned. Even though I've read this stuff before. Part of it is because something happened when I was doing Moby Dick. Those of you who were here last, you'll know. <laughs> what these people have had to suffer because of this. Um, we were at a point in Moby Dick where I just, I, I, I've been teaching Moby Dick for ages. I know that book. What started me in this group, this thing that I'm doing here at church, um, the guy who was in charge of adult catechesis before was starting a literature group and he was doing Moby Dick. I was so concerned that he wouldn't get to the depth of that because I know most people don't be, I offered to come in and help. He said, take it over, and I, you know, and so we, we started with the Iliad and went back, but at some point we got to Moby Dick, and in the middle of Moby Dick, I suddenly realized something that I'd not seen before, and it, I had to take a, a week off, or two weeks, those of you who were with me will remember, I know, um, um, and I realized that I, I couldn't present what I'd seen without going back to the early church fathers and the heresies. Um, that came out of nowhere. I had the same kind of experience here. Looking at these Reformation thinkers, I was just stunned because I realized what began there, we're still in. Things have not changed at all, at all, at all. What I was looking at then was a mess. In my pandemonium, <laughs> In the opening chapter of, of Paradise Lost, all the devil is going to go into pandemonium. I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating. Um, I, you know I'm given to it. Those of you, I mean, it's sometimes I, um, I either overstate or understate. I mean, that's the way my humor is. I'm not exaggerating right now. I'm not exaggerating. And you'll see it why in a second, if not today, next week. Things have not changed. They just have not changed. The, the, the way people look at the world today has its beginnings there. And it was stunning to see that. Because um, I just saw it with, a, I think, a greater clarity. So um, we're going to go back because um, that's where the modern world begins. And Milton is absolutely modern in one, in one respect because he's a part of the Reformation movement going forward. Dante, I'm going to make the claim when we get there, Dante is also modern, even though we can say, the way that I've already taught Dante, as I've said, Dante's got one foot in the Middle Ages and one foot in modernity. You'll see why when we get there. Um, if you know anything about the ancient epics, you know that they tend to take a great hero. Milton's ancient in that way because he takes this great hero, or what seems to be a hero, it's Satan. The Iliad, Achilles, the Odyssey, Odysseus, the Aeneid, Aeneas. You've got these extraordinary heroes 
Dante turns that on his head because he takes himself as the subject of the Divine Comedy. He's an ordinary man, he constantly passes out, Virgil has to constantly scold him. Beatrice takes him apart. The woman he loved takes him apart. Um, so we're seeing in Dante a radically new, a radically new Christian hero. We're going to have to set that up with Milton when we put the two together and see what we make of it. But both of them, in one sense, are on the verge of the modern world, but both of them are looking forward in radically different ways. So to read those two people is really important for understanding the world. One more thing about Dante. Um, those of you who did the Dante with me know this. On the day that Dante was born, or the year, 1265, Mark the beginning of, of what was then known as the Burger Republic. It was the first instance of the modern, what we know today as the modern commercial republic. It was independent of the emperor, it was independent of the church. It was a completely new, we'll get to it, what, what, why that's so and what happened. It's, it's the prototype of America. It's the prototype. That's the first commercial regime. It, different from the ancient world. I mean, the ancient world was, at, was Athens. That's a very different commercial republic from what emerges in Italy. First regime to be completely independent of the emperor and the pope. If you know anything about the Middle Ages, you know that, God, you think people are hurting each other today when you watch republics and Democrats talk about each other? They killed each other back in those days. I'm not exaggerating. The, the, the animosities between the parties were so deep, they killed each other. They went to war. Out of that struggle emerged these modern commercial republics. What Dante shows us in the Divine Comedy is absolutely prophetic. He lays bare the commercial regime. He shows us our soul. The envy, the greed, the wanting to get ahead, the stepping over people, the using people. We get every level of hell and purgatory in heaven and we see the best part of the commercial regime, and in purgatory in heaven, we see people getting free of it. That's how prophetic it is. So in both of those works, Paradise Lost, The Divine Comedy, we're looking at the modern world and everything that we know about it. So there's a lot to learn about the modern world um, from those two works. So that's what we're doing. One of the, I'm going to make this as a generalization here. If you look at the ancient world, the, the pagan world in the Middle Ages, we can describe that world, pagan and Christian, as a, theo, as a theocentric, a God-centered world. Yeah? God, was at the, God was the measure of things, not man. People looked to a God. The pagans did. It wasn't our God. It was multiple, but the, the pagan... The pagans were like Christians that said they acknowledged a higher order, and because they acknowledged it, that they knew that there were limitations to what they could do. Go back and read the literature, and you see that. Um, with the advent of science and the Copernican Revolution, we enter an anthropocentric, a man-centered world. And one of the, I'm going to make this a generalization right now. We'll see if it holds up. You guys may want to tag me on this later, I don't know, but 
it seems to me one of the things that's happened in the modern world is a demeaning of man, a, a degrading. You know that the modern view of man. I, we, we did this in our class. One way of understanding the world is to look at beginnings. Are there beginnings in the ancient world high or low? Anybody? Be beginnings are high. All the heroes come from the gods, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas. You look at the genealogy of the gods, certain men are, you know, but there's high, and, and in, the, in the ancient epics you see there's an awareness that they have lost that world, this golden world, that they're in a fall, and part of the struggle in the epics is to recover some goodness lost. The beginnings of the modern world, high or low? Absolutely low. We either came from a back black hole or we came from apes. If you, those of you who did Flannery O'Connor, the, the, um, the Heart of the Park, or I think it was, the whole action of that short story is to the museum and this little, what do you call it, this case with this shrunken human in it. It was an image of modern man. We are a product of forces beyond our control, Freud, Darwin, no. So the view of modern man is low, and here's, my, here's the question that I want to raise. To the extent that, that these rationalizing tendencies in the human soul begin to get reinforced in the modern world, what has it done for our sense of ourselves, the way we look at each other, the way we relate to each other, and maybe even more importantly, the way we understand Christ? I can't say that strongly enough right now, particularly in view of the Reformation and what we're going to see in a minute. The claim that I'm going to make here is that one, one way of describing what's happened in the modern world is what I would call a rationalizing tendency, to rationalize down. It's a, it's a dumbing down or a lowering or do something, rationalizing down. One way to understand that, we get very clearly in the Bible. Um, at <laughs> Christ had just performed a miracle with the feeding of the 5,000. Do you remember the loaves and the fish? He, he'd done this extraordinary thing. Took, what, five baskets of fish or loaves or something. And they, and they have, but I should have brought, I forgot. Next week I'll bring it. <laughs> there are these passages in the Old Testament. Remember, what, I think Elijah comes to the woman and she's only got that little bit of meal left. And she was reluctant to do it, but she fed him, and it never ran out. That's Old Testament. Are you following? Mm -hmm. We look at that as a prefiguring of the Eucharist. The 5,000 too, yeah? There's that other instance, and I can't remember, where another prophet figure came, and the same thing happened. Food was presented, and the biblical description is, and it didn't run out. And I think the reason it didn't with Elijah is because she sacrificed her life to do that. That was all she had. She gave it to him. And he stayed, he stayed with her for a year or something like that. I can't. Are you all following me? So we've got prefigurations of the Eucharist already here before Christ come. He does the 5,000. And then you know how it all closes. <coughs> drink, unless you drink of this and... You know, He's offering himself as the bread of life and, and all of that. Um, but <laughs> the point I wanted to get to here is he just performed a miracle. 
that anticipates the Eucharist. He's just fed 5,000 people with nothing, and they had leftovers. And he comes back, and the disciples are saying, give us a sign. God, what's wrong with us? Give us a sign? You just had one. Um, you're all following, yeah. I think, and those of you who did Two Had Faces, if you know the story, you know that um, at some point, I can't remember how it came up, but Oriole was looking for a sign, you know. That is, we want to bring God down to our level of understanding. You know, we want a sign. That is, we want some way of confirming it for ourselves. Just after he did this. So Christ is always taking us beyond ourselves. That is, he's, in, he's helping us to enter a divine world. Our tendency is we want to stay comfortable. We don't want to risk. We want to be, make things safe. Have control over it in some ways. I mean, however you want to describe it. There's been this tendency in the modern world to rationalize down. To define the world in terms of signs. So the whole sacred character, because remember the whole the Catholic churches, these are the, the all of the all of the sacraments are not signs. They're efficacious. They're mere one of the reasons I believe in the Catholic Church is because I believe in fairy tales. I'm not kidding on that, by the way. I, I mean I love fairy tales. I love I love stories. Um, what takes place in the sacraments are miracles. How many people go out and receive the Eucharist with any sense that a miracle is taking place? You're, we're taking the divine life into us. Um, when we were doing Moby Dick, I mean, what, what prompted the, I don't know what, what this two-week interruption in, in handling that story was, it suddenly struck me that one of the things that Melville's critiquing, one of the failures of Christianity, if you read the beginning of Moby Dick, every, every one of the characters that Ishmael meets is a Christian. Every one of them. And every one of them is being hypocritical. They do not see there's something wrong in what they're doing. They do not. What hit me is that I know this in my head before. I hadn't associated it with Moby Dick, but you can't miss it. If you take away the sacraments, if you take the sacraments out of your life, Christianity reduces to a moral code. How many of us are capable of living up to a moral code? We're back in a Jewish world. It's a code of, it's a, it's a way of law. We're back in an Old Testament world. Take, take away the sacraments and Christianity reduces it. Add the sacraments, and you're in a fairyland world. I mean, you're in a world of miracles. It's exactly what his disciples experienced. Healing the dumb, you know, curing the blind, sending out demons, rising from the dead, walking on water. Who believes that stuff? That's what our huh? Children, children do. Children um, do. Anyway, that's one of the, so one of the things that just a generalization. I'd like you can tag me on this or come back at me, but I'd, at least at this point, I'd like to say one of the things that seems to me we have to be aware of is that something changed, and one of the effects of that change was what I'm calling a rationalizing, of bringing things down to a level of signs where we can grasp them. How has that affected our lives with each other, the way we see each other, the way we act with each other, and more importantly, how does that affect the way we see Christ? 
because things radically changed at the Reformation. The church has always, always undergone reforms. Always. But always from within. What happens in the Reformation is that fundamental doctrines, dogmas, the Eucharist, um, um, were at issue. So we saw lots of struggles within the early church with heresies. You know, the, the modern Catholic Church would say, this is schismatic, it's a breaking off from fundamental things. So what's taking place right here is not small at all, it's huge. Um, so that's just a, a, a general observation for you guys to give some keep on your minds as we go forward. Let me stop for a minute. I want to I want to go back to the Reformation thinkers now. I want to actually look at at um, I've got some fundamental questions for you all, and then I'd like to just give a quick overview of some of these thinkers, Wycliffe and Luther and Calvin, and what they believed and how they stood in the church. Um, I'd intended to do Milton. I, there's no way I'm going to get to Milton, and and I. After Monday night class, I realized we're not going to get to him until halfway through next class. So be patient if, if you would, please. Um, any questions? Just I don't, I don't want a long discussion right now. It's not time. We've got to get on. But any brief questions? Anybody want to take up? Okay, let's start. Let's start. <laughs> One of the questions that I want to ask at the very outset is um, cares what we believe? Mm -hmm. Who cares? Who cares? Um, I, I think most of us, most of us would say, I think, that beliefs are important because they shape us. Um, personally, I'm, I'm going to speak again really on a personal note here for a second. I've thought a lot about these things all my life. I've taught literature. I, I stay close to philosophy and theology and history because I had to to teach literature. Um, um, in the modern world, I've been struck more and more by the importance of belief in our life because it's so clear to me that um, Muslims, when they go to their death, go to their death because of their beliefs. Try to persuade a Muslim out of his belief, you're going to have a hard time doing it. Go to a Catholic or a Christian, Protestant, any, go to anybody and try to persuade them out of their beliefs. Good luck. I mean, haven't most of you found the same thing? Um, when people are raised with certain beliefs, they're not going to change them lightly. The, the importance of conversions in anybody's life are, are not small, they're radical. Your whole life gets turned around. You know how important this is for me as a teacher because you know, those of you who have been with me, in, if you look at good works of literature, there's a peripatia, a turn. Aristotle calls the turn in an action, in a story. Jane Austen, Shakespeare, all of them. 
all of, all of the epics that we read, a peripety, a turn, a conversion, a change. You think you see everything right and you suddenly hit a point in your life and suddenly you're knocked over and you, your whole way of seeing things changes. The church calls it a metanoia. Well, you know how painful and shocking that is because up to that point, you were governed in everything you did by a certain belief. So beliefs are not small in my mind, they're extraordinary. Um, what does it matter what we believe? Obviously it does because there's a big difference between say somebody who's Muslim and somebody who's Christian or somebody who doesn't believe at all, who's agnostic, who believes he should be free to do whatever he wants. Our beliefs shape us. Okay, where it gets naughty is here. Um, what difference does it make if you're Jewish or Muslim or Christian? I mean, I'm, 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 we're not going to answer this right now. I hope people will think about this, but obviously there's a difference or they wouldn't hold those beliefs. What does it mean for somebody who's Jewish to live the way he does? How will his beliefs play out in his life? How will it affect the way he relates to other people? I'm hoping you see how fundamental that is. Same thing for somebody who's Islamic. How will it shape what he does, how will it affect what he does with other people? The way he sees them, the way he interacts with them? Obviously there are fundamental differences. Can you name them? Can we? More to the point here is, what does it matter if you're raised Calvin or Lutheran? Or Catholic? Because in the last three categories, Calvinism, Lutheran, which are the major inspiring forces behind, by and large, the Protestant world and Catholicism, they all, we all believe in Christ, Calvin, Luther. If you read Calvin's works, you, you know how absolutely dedicated that man was to Christ. He wouldn't have written as he, he would not have written any, he wouldn't have been as fierce in trying to um, create these Christian worlds. He was absolutely devoted to Christ. So was Luther. Both Luther and Calvin were so upset by the corruptions in the Catholic Church that they had an incentive to do something different. They believe in Christ. Calvin did. Luther did. So do Catholics. We all believe in Christ. So who cares? What's the difference? What does it matter? I hope. I mean, can we can we talk about the implications of those beliefs? Um, as they play out in the way people live their lives. And ultimately for us, I mean for most of us here, I mean, um, is there a difference for a Catholic? Do we really live out our faith as completely as we should if we're Catholic? When we get to Dante's Divine Comedy, those of you who've done it already, you know, 90% of the people in hell are Catholics. <laughs> so, um, and I, um, I, I think you all know that Pope Francis a year ago, was Francis, wasn't it? 
Francis asked everybody in the Catholic Church. He asked the whole entire Catholic Church to read the Divine Con when is a When has a pope ever done that? I've never heard a pope say, read the catechism. Mm -hmm. He didn't say, read the catechism. This is, I really feel high right now. <laughs> he didn't say, read the catechism. He said, read poetry. <laughs> um, he said, read the Divine Comedy. Why? Why? What's in the Divine Comedy that all of us should read? So that's where we're going, okay? What does it matter? Who cares? Um, let me offer some thoughts now on the three great reformers in the Reformation. If you go to your sheet, I can't remember which one, I think it may be the first class, Milton first class, whatever it is. You got a brief outline of what I'm about to go over. They're not the same, they don't line up, but they, they're, they're roughly the same. I want to go through this quickly. If you, there are two things to take out here. One of them is the brief thumbnail sketch. Oh my God. God. On, the on the stages of, yeah. Brief thumbnail, history of church and state. You all have this sheet? Yes. Get that and then you have the, I think the first class. Yeah, the lecture one, Milton, Paradise Lost. If you look at page two, you'll see John Wycliffe, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin. They're just notes there. Okay. Just a couple of brief things here. One is, by the way, I, I would so strongly encourage you to read these historical, they're brief, they're really brief. But if you read this little packet that I've given you on the historical background, it, it will help you understand so much of what's going on. Um, and if I'm correct in this, um, you'll understand a lot about where we are today. Um. Okay, very quickly, very quickly. If you look at the brief thumbnail history of the church, you see that it's divided down into three periods. Um, I want to do this very, very quickly, so stay with me if you can. You can read these on your own, though. It would be really good to read. In the thumbnail, look at the quotes from the Bible. Render to Caesar, my kingdom is not of this world. I'll give to thee the keys of the kingdom. Fear God, honor the king. We have to obey God rather than men. There is no power but from God. The princes of this world come to naught. They said, Lord, there are two swords. When you go through those passages and others, that's just a sampling, you know, and, and we know it specifically from Christ, that there are two powers, given to Caesar, given to God. That Caesar rules us with respect to our temporal existence, our body concerns of the body, the temporal concerns that we have. Christ is our ruler with respect to final ends, the outcome of our soul. The church has as its charge the care of our souls and our eternal end. So those are the two powers. Um, the, the first phase of this early Christian history 
can be defined in terms of those two cities, um, gods and Caesars. And what, what happens at a moment in time that confuses them, um, collapses them, okay? Look at the first paragraph, Jerome, Ambrose, St. Augustine, particularly St. Augustine. St. Augustine said, there are two cities. Pope Galatius, if you read that first paragraph, writes, two there are by which the world is chiefly ruled, the sacred authority of the priesthood and the royal power. Of these, the responsibility of priest is more weighty because obviously the soul's at stake. These terms, auctoritas and potestas, inherent authority versus mere power define the conflict between Rome, or define the conflict following Rome's decline. St. Augustine said, how do you know, Doc? Dry. St. Augustine said there are two cities, the city of man and the city of God. Okay? The city of man is given to power. The city of God is an ultimate end. Since that's our final destiny, he said, there's this Christian community, which he calls a peregrine, um, a wandering city, a city in exile. Um, St. Augustine is making it clear, and this is so typical of our age, um, that if we, if we begin to treat our home here as a final end, there's something wrong. Because this is not our home. When people get upset because they feel that something makes them aware of their insecurity or instability or, you know, and they treat it as if that's a final home, that this is our, um, there's something wrong. Because we're meant to be in exile. Christ said, Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This is not my home. Christ was in exile. He came here in exile. His home was with his Father. He came here to take us there. So um, we should, part of our life should be living in mystery. That we can't ever become completely settled or comfortable. If we do, it's as if we're treating this as our home. It's not going to be that way. The troubles that we have often remind us things are not as secure as we thought they are always, yeah? Um, Oh, so one of the most important things that we have to deal with in the beginning is this notion of the city, the earthly community. We know from the Bible that um, the first city came into existence after Cain's exile. This is so important. You know that Cain killed Abel, and God sent him into exile. Put a mark on his head, and God warned everybody not to do anything with him. That's how protective he was of a murderer. Right? He wasn't going to allow people to do. Cain was on his own. Um, Cain's son, Enoch, is the founder of the first city. You read the Bible, you know that. So the city comes into existence when man's in exile from God, it's an attempt to be self-sufficient, to not need God. So one of the qualities that marks the human city is the spirit of self-sufficiency, as if we don't need God. So the city is always paradoxical, historically, in literary terms. It's always been paradoxical. We see in the city 
the greatness of man's aspirations. We want to do great things. The, I think of the Twin Towers coming down. If that doesn't speak directly to this, I don't know what does. We, we have these symbols of our greatness. By the way, interesting fact, really interesting fact. If you go back to the Middle Ages and you follow all the town, the roads in a town, where do they all go? To a church. No? Go to any town. All the roads will go to a church. In the modern world, where do all the roads go? Hmm? Where? Courthouse. Sorry? Courthouse? you say courthouse? Business buildings, CEOs, the, whatever the major industries are, the great buildings are corporations. All the roads in the modern world lead where? Corporations, finance, success, comfort, wealth, image. Big surprise at the corruption in our world? I mean, it, to me, it's sort of flooring. Um, the first city came into existence in an attempt to be self-sufficient, to live without God. So the nature of the human community is paradoxical. In it, we find everything that's great about man and everything that's wounded and tending towards bad. Okay? So when St. Augustine talks about the two cities, he talks about this one community. It's an image of the church. The church is a community on its way to the final city. So the image of the city is going to be really important. It's, the, it's, it's important in chapter 1 in Milton because you know the first thing the, that devils do when Satan dismisses, they go in and build their city. <laughs> it's called pandemonium. In some ways it's Milton's view of what he's trying to escape in his life because if you, when you read this stuff you'll see. He's embroiled in turmoil after turmoil. I mean, if there's one word to describe the, the, the world as Milton knew it, pandemonium, chaos, arguing, fighting, wars, killing each other, everything. So the, the, um, what happens in this first phase is after Rome is attacked, it begins to come under the control of these Germanic tribes and Pope Leo, I think it was, came out when, when the Germanic tribes were conquering Rome. He's the one who came out and negotiated a settlement, not the emperor, the pope. At that moment, the, the, the church becomes absolutely embroiled in political affairs. Okay? If you read these, I really would like you guys to read these. They're all short. They're just... In the second phase, on that same document, you'll see that what happens is, because of the... Um, oh, and the other thing that's important, sorry. In the third, fourth century, Constantine made toleration of Christianity legal. And think about the implications of that, because by doing that, he sanctioned that religion. It gave it a greater importance than the pagan religions. <coughs> It had the support of the Pope, I mean the, the Emperor. So the church is becoming very much embroiled and part of its authority comes from the Emperor himself. In the 12th century, one of the most important battles that takes place in the medieval church is what we know today as the investiture conflict. It's there at the bottom of page one on that thumbnail. The Emperor had the right to invest bishops. Well, because he had the power to do that, the church becomes greatly secularized. Priests and bishops begin to own property. They begin to marry. That's where the corruptions begin. Dante speaks, one of the, one of the levels in hell is simony. 
church, selling church offices, selling indulgences, uh, which will work up Luther. Um, the Pope and Emperor are at loggerheads with each other, and the Pope reaches a point where he actually excommunicates Henry. This is the top of page two on that same sheet. Henry travels to Canosa on his knees in the snow and asks for forgiveness and is brought back into the church. The second phase has to do with the kind of legal developments because the church began to see how important it was to get a firmer grasp on law so that they could make decisions on these matters of church and state. All of the great popes in that period were lawyers, all of them. And these great works came out of that period, the decretum, the decretist. Um, the work there emphasized the role of the popes as supreme judge and legislator in all ecclesiastical affairs. They knew that if they were going to settle on math, ecclesiastical matters having to do with justice, they had to have better minds. So um, they're much more legally adept in this period. You can see the church beginning to change itself. And more importantly, the church is slowly beginning to disengage from the empire. I think, I think it's safe to say this. One of the great accomplishments of the medieval Catholic Church was that it, over time, with all of its struggles, it gradually separated itself out. So the church and state became two well-defined powers, two different ends, two entirely different ends, two entirely different ways of dealing with things. That battle's still going on up, in, up until Dante's time, but when the modern commercial regime comes into existence, this regime that's independent from the emperor and you're, you're, you, that's one of the fruits of the church separating itself out. That it produced what we know today, one of the elements behind the Renaissance, what we know today is the Renaissance. The third phase is a phase in which Aristotle plays a major role and, and I, I don't think there's, you, we can say enough about the role that he played because he's going to lead to St. Thomas and what St. Thomas does to the church. Um, Philip of France um, was taxing the clergy because he wanted to support the wars against England and he was actually trying a bishop for heresy. You can see that if you read that third phase. He was actually trying a bishop for heresy. The Pope um, opposed that and Philip sent forces to Anagni to capture Boniface and he was actually imprisoned, the Pope was. You know that shortly after that, um, the power that France has over the um, Curia, the papacy, is so great that the papacy moves from Rome to France. And it's during that period, what we know today is we call the Babylonian captivity, that, that Rome, the papacy, is really in captivity. It's under the control of the state, largely. And it's that way for a long time. Now, it's important to remember this. It's during this period that Wycliffe is writing. So he's aware of, and, and you know if you know about that, that schism, is, or that, that captivity, whatever we're going to call it, Rome moves to France, and when they return, because of the divisions within the church, multiple popes are chosen. In the second stage of this history, 
The, the papacy did it, everything it could to protect the, uh, um, the autonomy of the College of Bishops because it was essential that they remain free, not under the influence of the emperor. That was a major advance in the, in the church. You'll read it if you go back there. Um, here, the pope's under the thumb of the king. And when the papacy returns to Rome, the divisions are so great that the different divisions elect different popes, so that at the same time, our church is under multiple popes. Well, that can't be ever. I mean, the unity is destroyed because what's, in, what's vested in the pope is the unity of the church. So that's where we are. The corruptions are, are everywhere. They're in France. It's a luxuriant court full of wealth. Um, that goes on for a long time. We, we think about corruptions today with the sexual abuses. Church has never been without these horrible things, ever. And they're, they're rampant here. The luxury, the wealth, um, bishops who have uh, mistresses, um, priests and bishops who own property, who, who, who are more ready to serve their king or their emperor than the Pope or the Church or Christ. So it's a time of great divisions, um, widespread corruption. This is the world that um, Wycliffe, Wycliffe is born into. Okay. So let me let me turn to him. I want to try to do this briefly because we're getting close to time and. Um, but I want you to see what's at stake here because this is, this is what makes up the Reformation, the beginnings of what we know um, today as the Reformation in our modern world. Wycliffe, um, you should have the dates, I think, in that sheet you have. He was born 1320, died 1384. He, wrote, he, didn't, he was born somewhere around. I don't think we know exactly the date. He's writing during the Babylonian captivity. Rome's in France. He's aware of the corruption in the church and his everything about the reforms that he's calling for reflect his awareness of the corruptions. He's called the morning star of the Reformation. That's such an important title. If you look at Luther's writings and you're aware of Wycliffe, you can say that... <laughs> one thing you can say about Luther is he's a great plagiarizer. I mean, so many of his doctrines truly go back to Wycliffe. And, and Wycliffe gets no attention, um, even though he's, he really begins them all. He's called the Morning Star. He was a follower of William of Ockham, who was one of the great um, nominalists in the Middle Ages. I don't want to go into this to try to put this simply. Um, there was this great debate, probably the most important debate in the medieval church between nominalism and realism. It goes back to Plato and Aristotle and the nominalists, or then, and during Plato and Aristotle's time. A realist is somebody who believes that universals are real, that the ultimate sources of things are real. Plato believed it was the forms. Aristotle believed it was a god. Um, the nominalists believe that the only things that are real are concrete material things, right? I mean, we, we don't have any questions about that. Everything is real. They're particular. They're real, concrete. Universals existed only in the mind. They weren't real. They're just names of things. That's where we get nominalism. The reason this is so important is this. If there are no universals, how do we describe the Trinity? 
because the Trinity isn't made up of of um, persons who have bodies, um, and our understanding of God is that He's infinite. By His very nature, there's a universal quality to Him. He can't be delimited by matter, the way material thing, the way particulars are, particular concrete things. That was a major, major battle between theologians in the medieval church. Wickham, I mean, Wycliffe was a follower of Ockham. Um, he believed that there was no scriptural evidence for the authority of the Pope, and um, if, if priests were negligent, they should be answerable to the king. The only true Pope he believed was a Pope who followed Peter and Christ. He believed that all priests should be poor, that if, if there was a Pope, the only sign of the un authenticity of the Pope was his poverty, that he would live like Christ and Peter. Think about the importance of St. Francis's reforms here, because you know that St. Francis believed the same thing. He, he committed his life to poverty. Francis, our Pope, I mean, his, I think his, opening, his initial stage in the papacy was to call everybody sort of out of their wealth in the church and, you know, look at the marginalized and the poor. And He was greatly disturbed by the wealth of the church he believed that the hierarchy of the church should be destroyed and replaced by poor priests. He believed that the monastery should be destroyed. He believed that they were centers of corruption. The church handled even poverty. So there's a rigorous quality to um, Wycliffe. You know the, donut, the, donut, the Donatist heretic? The Donatist heretic, um, Augustine answered, the Donatists were people who believed that anybody, any priest who was in sin invalidated the sacraments that he administered. That unless a priest were pure, the sacraments were invalid. And St. Augustine answered that. He said, no way. I mean, the church is full of sinners. Priests are going to be sinners. That priests can be in sin. It's not an encouragement of sin. It's just a fact. It's, it doesn't invalidate Christ offering himself in the sacraments. So there's a rigorous element um, to Wycliffe's thinking Particularly, and, and you can understand the, the reason for it if you look at the corruptions of the church. England refused to pay tribute to Rome, uh, be, particularly because the papacy was in France and war in England and France were at war. Wycliffe supported the seculariza secularization of properties, clerical properties. Um, I remember he, he was put under house arrest by the church once. And um, he, he wrote a defense arguing that um, he should be able to make his appeal for being excommunicated to the king. So in many instances he was turning ecclesiastical matters over, that should have been decided by the church over to the secular world, to the king. Um, and like, I mean, Luther doesn't come later, but one of the things that Wycliffe is known for is his writing of theses. He did it a number of times, long list of theses. Um, that's what Luther did in Wittenberg. You know, I mean, people mark the Reformation there. It really should begin with Wycliffe. I mean, if we're um, truthful about this, accurate. Here's where things, here's where things get really touchy. He, do, he doesn't believe that the Pope has an authority over the church. Um, 
He believes that the hierarchical order should be destroyed. All of these are, by the way, those are, these are all Luther's beliefs. These are fundamental Luther. Here's his belief in the Eucharist. He believed that Christ, this is the nominalist side to his character. He believed that Christ died once, that that sacrifice was complete and answered forever all sins. Because he was a nominalist, he believed that Christ went back to the Father in his um, local nature, localized nature, he went back, and that he doesn't keep returning in the sacrament. Though what's there is the bread and wine, it's by virtue of a person's faith that Christ is present in that Eucharist. That's Luther too, by the way. Luther uses a different language, but that's Luther. And his philosophic argument was this. He doesn't believe that an, a thing can be destroyed in its substance. So the bread and wine remain bread and wine during, I don't, he wouldn't call it a consecration, but whatever that act is to be called then. So that if Christ is present, he's present by virtue of the faith of the people, the, the workings of the Holy Spirit in a person who believes that Christ is present. Okay? Here, here are his words. The nature of the bread is not destroyed by what's done by the priest. It's only elevated so as to become a substance more honored. The bread, while becoming the virtue, by virtue of Christ's words and body of Christ, does not cease to be bread. Now remember, the Catholic Church believes in transubstantiation, in the act of con that can only be formed by a priestly, by somebody in the priesthood, that the body, the bread and wine are transformed. They're no longer bread and wine as we know it, just ordinary. They become the real presence of Christ. Fully human, fully divine. Not one or the other, both at once. Um, the bread and wine, um, the bread doesn't cease to be bread, the wine doesn't cease to be wine. When it has become sacramentally the body of Christ, it remains bread substantially. Nobody on earth is able to see Christ in the consecrated host with the bodily eye, but by faith. Luther is going to just, every, so much of what Luther does simply repeats this. Let me take Luther just for a minute. You remember that he hung up his theses on the gates of Wittenberg. It was a Catholic university in 1517. Some people mark that as the beginning of the Reformation. Some of Luther's fundamental beliefs. He believed that man's personal relationship with Christ was more important that it was a man's personal private act that related him to God. So he wanted to do away with the hierarchical priestly order as well. For both Wycliffe, Wycliffe and Luther, there are only two sacraments from seven, baptism and the Eucharist. There are no priestly orders. The sacerdotal order is removed. Luther believed that the authority for what takes place on the altar comes from the faith of a congregation. Not the apostolic succession, not the power given by Christ. That priests that priest will be chosen out of the congregation. Um, he challenged the authority of the Pope. Um, Luther believed I like Wycliffe, but more strongly than Wycliffe, that all men are depraved. All men are depraved. Luther believed that man was depraved and had no free will. That he was corrupted, essentially. So, 
he believed in baptism, the Eucharist, confirmation, reconciliation, the anointing of the sixth, marriage, and holy orders are no longer sacramental. A priest can marry, since it's not a sacrament anymore, he could divorce, he could marry, a priest couldn't. Marriage is not sacred, holy orders are not sacred. Um, the priests are, come largely out of the congregation. And here, once again, is one of the fundamental difficulties with Luther, as at least we understand. Luther did not believe, he did not accept the, the, um, the doctrine of um, transubstantiation. He believed in what he called consubstantiation. That the body, the bread and wine, remained the bread and wine while it received Christ. Of all the Reformation thinkers, he's the one closest. I mean, he knew, he when he met with with, uh, with um, Luther and Zwingli, there were fundamental differences between them on that. They didn't disagree. I mean, they didn't agree on this at all. I mean, I want to come back to this because this is crucial. All of them claim to know the truth. All of them differ. Make sense of that. Luther, like Wycliffe, believed in consubstantiation. He believed that the body, the bread and wine, remained the same while Christ entered them. So he differed from them in this respect. He believed that Christ actually entered sacredly into it. And his way of explaining that was with the notion of consubstantiation. Okay? Now I want to come back to this. Who cares? Wait, hold on. Who cares? Calvin. Calvin believed that man was depraved. He had no free will. He, he didn't believe in the sacrament at all. He believed that Christ's crucifixion answered it all. For Calvin, there was no mass. There was no priesthood. Here's, here's crucial. Everybody, he believed no priesthood, no mass was necessary. No sacrifice took place on the mass. It had been done over. He believed that the service consisted of a ministry of the word, of reading the word and speaking to it. In every one of these instances, the, the sacrament of the Eucharist is either taken completely away or changed. So for Luther, it was a ministry of the word. In one instance, this is really interesting to me, in one respect, what happens with Calvin is that he almost takes the church back to a Jewish world. Because what happens in a, in a Calvinistic world is that a minister is interpreting a Bible, a piece of scripture. You're in your head, reading scripture, interpreting scripture. It's, it's what the rabbis did in the ancient world, in the temple. The sacraments gone. In Calvin's world, there is no sacrament. They wanted to strip the church of all rituals. One of the big differences between Calvin and the other Reformation thinkers is that Calvin believed in predestination. This is really where it gets interesting. Calvin believed that every man was predestined either to heaven or hell before he was born into this world. That is, he believed some men that God created some men to come into this world when they were already evil, damned. There was nothing they could do. It was his way of protecting, in his mind, what he called God's sovereignty. 
that, that man could not affect God, that his sovereignty was so complete. That, to him, was a, just a, a horrible notion. Those of you who did Moby Dick with me know that I believe Moby Dick is, is Melville's answer to that, because if you know anything about Moby Dick, you know that Ahab, I mean, it, I, it, I can't read that book anymore after this last year. Um, it's just, I mean, I've, there, I've always admired something in, in Ahab, but I know he's a tragic figure. There's no way not to see that. But the greatest part of his struggle through that whole thing is his sense of being wounded unfairly. And he, the whole, his whole quest is a struggle with this notion of predestined. Is there, is, there, is there this malice in the world who set all this evil in motion? What's the ultimate source of evil? If God, if God created humans who are evil, where did that evil come from? If, 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 if immortal souls come into this world, they come to us from God. What's the source of that evil? That is Ahab's great struggle. It's extraordinary, just extraordinary. And if you know Moby Dick, you know the answer to it is Ishmael. Absolutely different way of looking at the world. Um, so like um, um, Wycliffe and Luther, Calvin believed that it was by virtue of a man's faith that he was saved. It was his faith in God and the, the interesting thing, whatever you want to call it, clearly that faith is predestined. God, Christ is needed because man needs a savior, but it's only by virtue of his faith. He believed that that faith was predestined. Some people were going to have it, some people not. So that means people in Calvin's world go around aware that some of the people around them um, are damned already, that Christ did not come to save everybody, he came to save those who were already predestined to be saved. He believed that if there was a sacrifice in the church, I mean, you could put a chalice of grape juice out. It was by virtue of your faith that, that Christ was alive for you. It was the action of the Holy Spirit in your life. Interesting, I forgot to mention this in Luther's world. Luther, because he believed in consubstantiation, believed something similar, that it was by virtue of a congregation's faith in that act, the consubstantiation, that it became, or Christ entered into it. After the congregation left, you could take that bread and wine and dump it. Dump it. Some people joke about that and said you could feed it to the dogs. Luther always said treat it reverently, but you could dump it because it wasn't. It was. It was only Christ, by virtue of a person's faith in what was taking place there. So to summarize this, the, the Reformation thinkers, as a group, believe that man is depraved. He has no free will. He, the ultimate authority of a man's belief is scripture. And he's justified, his life turns around by virtue of his faith. Okay? They, they disagree on the nature of those things. Interestingly, they all agree in the infallible authority of the Bible, and yet all of them read the Bible differently, fundamentally differently. So even if the Bible is a fundamental authority and they believe in truth, they somehow hold it's possible that each of them believe that the truth is different 
and yet truth is one. It's one of the difficulties here. It's by virtue of a man's faith that he's saved. So while they're together on their belief in man's depravity, in the importance of the Bible, and the importance of faith, they differ on all other things except for one thing. They are unified in their disagreement with the Catholic Church, their opposition to the Catholic Church. Um, I mean, and, and, their, and their opposition to that is deep and strong. Luther makes it clear. Um, oh, Ketzer, I'm thinking about Milton. Milton makes it clear when he's defending um, freedom of, the freedom of speech in Eripagitica. Um, that people should be free to print things even if they're um, challenging religious beliefs. Except he was very wary of the Papists, the Catholics, because he believed that what they believed was superstitious and that people had to be particularly on guard with them. So what we're watching here is what I'm calling this rationalizing, this this habit of mind of turning away from the sacredness of things, the mystery, the Eucharist is, the real presence is gone. The real presence is gone. The sacredness of the sacraments, their efficacy, their power is gone. They all, all these reformers believe in baptism and um, the Eucharist, but their belief in the Eucharist is changed. They believe that baptism and the Eucharist are signs. So faith for them is imputed it's imputed, not a living thing in a person. It's put on. It, 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 it's not internalized to become an active, ongoing, living power in your life. So you can see that there's um, a change in the way that we look at man and God, that the, that the quality of mystery or the sacred in our human lives has been affected. Um, so the, I just will leave, it's time for us to stop, but I'll just leave everybody with this question. Um, um, who cares what we believe? Jews believe something, Muslims believe something, Christians believe something. Within the Christian community, there's these fundamental differences, Lutheran, Calvinistic, Reform, you know, the various forms that it can take, Catholic. Um, what's the difference? In the latter case, they all believe in Christ. Deeply, deeply, Christ defines their lives. What difference does it make? Let me stop there. Um, I wanted to go on to Milton, but we're already a few minutes late, so. Any questions before we break up for the day? When we, before, if you, before you ask, what next week I'm gonna pick up with this, because what I'd like to do to begin our, our time next week, I wanna, I wanna set out in my mind what I think are the implications of these beliefs. I would be glad if all of you thought about that, but I'm gonna put out what I believe are the implications because the implications as I look at them are radically different. They do affect how we live. I'm not sure people think about them. I've been thinking about them a good bit. But I, um, I would ask you all to think about those, but I'd like to start. We'll start with that and then we'll start Milton. So read the first two chapters. The schedule will be we will read two chapters each week. So you should already be a week in advance. So if I give you a test next week, nobody should be surprised. <laughs> um, 
Hold on, hold on. So anyway, that's what we'll do next week, okay? Next, we will, um, I'll, I, I want to set out the implications because I think they're real. And we'll start, Milton. Any questions about any of this? Must not be doing something right here. Okay. See you guys. Read Supernatural Love and read it aloud.